Hello and welcome to these audio recordings from Project Echo, Westwick PHN Hub, COVID-19 Pandemic Response Echo Network Series. Series 4, Session 3. It's Thursday the 4th of March 2021 and welcome back. So we are now into what we're calling preparing for the community rollout Phase 1B. The AI announcements were made last week with a large number of clinics within our catchment now being advised that they're eligible to participate in the Phase 1B rollout. Some of you will be early adopters and will have been busy discussing your models of care. Some of you may decline and are maybe here this morning to hear about models of care for later adoption. And some of you will be considering your role alongside phase 1B. Over the coming weeks, we'll aim to focus our conversations on the systems and processes being put in place across the West with the aim of enabling each other to shortcut our thinking and avoid duplication of effort in these systems and processes. We'll be talking through the broad planning and the small grain details, discussing key activities and behaviours, as well as those system enablers that will either make or break the rollout from the perspective of primary care. Over the coming weeks, we'll also be encouraging one another to consider our role within the broader primary care service system beyond our own clinic within an organisation. As these tangibles and numbers come more clearly into view, we'll realise what a huge undertaking this strategy will be. And it will be a matter of, as Danny tells me, bringing all hands on deck if we're going to achieve this ambitious target of achieving, um, actually, I'll I'll defer to the ID team, but um, around about 80% coverage and protection against the COVID-19 disease by late October. So feels feel free to network in the chat. Uh, You know, if you do find Project Echo is a time that you want to be speaking to one another and um, lining up your systems processes or arranging to meet outside, um, you know, do it. That's what this is there for. I'm Bianca Forrester and I'm the GP facilitating this morning's meeting and I'd like to acknowledge the work of the Project Echo team, our coordinators, Gemma, Nat, Katrina, KP and also Fiona Quigley who's leading from Workforce Development. Shout out to Zach Hollow, now intern, who's our resident note taker this morning. Um, so welcome everyone. Uh, zooming in from the Westwick region, um, we'll uh, if you open up your chat and have a look, you'll see who's here this morning. So I'd like to now welcome our panel for this morning. As always, Kate Graham's going to bring you the um, the health pathways update, and also um, she's now becoming quite the uh, librarian of resources, I think, because um, there's so much out there. So letting you know where you can put your hands on. Um, those key resources that we're seeing. There's a lot of information coming through right now. I'd like to introduce um, a new panellist to Project ECHO, Dr. Callum Maggs. Callum's running the uh, Specialist Immunisation Clinic at Bowen Health, and he's an infectious diseases physician with Bowen Health. Um, And he'll be talking to us this morning about the Specialist Immunisation Clinic um, and also um, giving us a, a brief update of what's happening kind of behind doors at um, the PHU Bowen. Uh, welcome to Danny, who's um, now with us um, in, um, in in presenting a case this morning. She's going to give us a service system presentation. So I've we've taken um, John Henderson's model of care that he presented a few weeks back and, um, and really adapted it and made it the UFS model to see how um, Danny's kind of um, moving along her thinking now that they know they're going to be in that um, role. So, and then we'll finish with the PHN update from Linda Gowan. All right, Govan. Okay, great. And she is the senior manager of um, the Goldfields in Ballarat. Um, with that, I would like to hand over to Kate Graham. Thanks, Kate. So in terms of a health pathways update, I'll just go to the next slide. We've got, I mean, this week in the news, we've had a few things happening that haven't been COVID. So I just wanted to flag for any GPs out there who may be seeing um, women who are disclosing um, previous sexual assault. Um, We do have health pathways on sexual assault and sexual assault services. So they're really important ones to keep in the back of our mind. 
But in terms of COVID, um, we've got guidance for post-vaccination testing. So that's now up on the initial assessment and management vaccine procedure page. And really the guidance is directed around that 1A risk group at the moment. Um, guidance for 1B will come out later, but it's really sort of providing good advice on testing thresholds, isolation, um, and talking about the additional caution that's needed for any people working in high-risk environments where you may actually have to communicate or the people may have to communicate with their employer about returning to work. Um, so it's not currently available on the Victorian Department of Health website um, or anywhere else, so it's really essential to review via Health Pathways, and we just got an early release um, clinically approved version of that, so that was good for us. So. Yep. So the other new thing that everyone may have heard about in the media is the TGA advertising rules. And I know that the RACGP are attempting to gain a bit more clarity about this, but currently we're at the state where we can't use any self-developed advertising about COVID-19 vaccines. And that includes social media um, from the clinic. So you can use government produced materials, materials produced by Victoria Health or um, health.gov. Um, there's a wide range of resources out there that clinics can use in terms of promoting that awareness around vaccines. Um, and you can put up factual information about your clinics when they start up. Um, but what you're not able to do, I'll just go to, so you, you can't alter any of the information. You can't add to any of the information. It's quite strict guidance because this is a sort of legal pre-existing thing from the TGA relating to advertising of prescription medications. So there will be more to come on this, um, but this is an example of some of the things that you can and can't do. So this is straight from the TGA advice. Um, so what you can do is sort of using the Australian government's social media tiles, um, you can list where and when you can get vaccinated, but you can't release videos of patients getting vaccines and say it didn't hurt or you can't um, promote free coffees or free lollipops. Um, so while I'm very disappointed, my bicep won't be appearing on social media when I do get vaccinated. Um, at present, that is what um, the ruling is. This doesn't mean that you can't provide patients with that advice. This is just about advertising to the general public and consumers. So Patients, you can provide with information sheets. You can discuss pros and cons of vaccines with them in more detail. So next slide. Um, so in terms of preparing to vaccinate, um, with the COVID-19 vaccine AstraZeneca, current guidance is that the vaccine must be given immediately after being drawn up, um, which is different to Pfizer, where you can have the um, sort of vaccine waiting and your syringes ready to go. Where... Uh, the government is clarifying this with AstraZeneca Global. They haven't been able to get answers from the Australian division. Um, it's surprising that it hasn't actually been clarified somewhere in the world by now, but that is the state in which we are living. So that's going to really make a difference in terms of how clinics are sort of preparing for their modelling and how the structure of what's going to happen um, will occur. Training modules, there's been some advice from the RACGP saying don't do them until there's a GP-specific module. The Department of Health advice is get them done now. They have been reviewed um, against general practice relevance. Um, they'll be continuing to be reviewed. There may be modules later. There's none planned at the moment. So don't wait. 
get them done. It's going to help you with preparing to give those vaccines, which, you know, may only be three weeks away. So one B categories will have further clarification prior to the commencement date, definitions of which critical workers, further definitions of some of the high-risk illnesses. Um, and so vaccine-hesitant group, um, the Department of Health is also developing materials and promotion for that group, but that's not the group that we probably need to be focusing on at the moment. With limited vaccines, when we've got limited numbers in our rollout at the moment, the main aim is to just get that population vaccinated who need to be vaccinated, who want to be vaccinated. And when we're getting closer to that sort of 80%, that's when we're going to be, you know, really targeting in on those people who are unsure, haven't been vaccinated yet. Um, that doesn't stop you having those conversations with people at really high risk um, at this point in time, though. And I'm not sure if I had anything else. I think that might be it for me. So thank you. Fantastic. Well, Thanks so much. Questions Kate. in the chat. That's right. Thank you so much. And what an interesting week that's been around um, advertising. So thanks for um, really highlighting that for us. All right. Um, I'm going to now hand over to Cal Mags, Dr. Cal Mags. He's the, he runs the SICK clinic. So it's the specialist immunization clinic, coolest clinic in the West. It's ice cold. We hear um, rolling out the Pfizer vaccines to people who might uh, um, have um, special risks. Where's Callum? I'm just trying to see him on my screen. Oh, there you Hi. are. Wonderful. All right, I'm going to hand over to you. Thanks, Callum. Hi, guys. Yes, I'm here to talk about the sick clinic. Um, it's going to be pretty sick. Um, <laughs> just an update uh, before that, though, about the vaccine rollout. And I'm not at the coal face of this, but I do attend some meetings. Um, so far, we've rolled out uh, six and a half thousand vaccines statewide, uh, which is great. Uh, We've had, in terms of what I'm covering, we've had very few adverse events, if any, so um, that are significant anyway. Um, so that's excellent news as well. And I've heard there's been overwhelming um, interest from um, all the GP sites about becoming vaccination centres so, uh, for the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is awesome. Um, I think there's been a few questions around um, GPs getting vaccinated, uh, particularly those uh, in aged care facilities. Um, and I'll just leave it at uh, we where... It's a very dynamic situation in terms of uh, when uh, we get vaccine doses and, and how many doses we get. So um, at every meeting I go to, it seems to be changing day to day um, how many we're going to be getting. So we're, we're really uh, quickly trying to work through all the, the uh, tier 1A um, healthcare workers at this stage, but we'll, we'll give you an update as soon as we know. Um, so just moving on to what I'm here to talk about, which is... Uh, vaccine um, safety and uh, and basically uh, a clinic that I'll be um, setting up, which will be up and running in late March uh, for formal referrals. Uh, basically, um, I'll start off with a bit of talk. So th this slide is just to give my talk a little bit of legitimacy. <laughs> um, I don't know if everyone's seen this slide before. Everyone's probably seen some form of hypersensitivity reaction uh, in their practice at some point in time. Um, and there's a couple of uh, you know, hypersensitivities related to vaccines uh, and particularly COVID vaccine that we're going to uh, be focusing on really. Uh, the, obviously the immediate IgE mediated hypersensitivities are the ones that everyone's aware of, you know, the, the anaphylaxis um, and that's usually fairly uh, predictable and to a specific antigen. Um, these ones are, are few and far between in terms of the COVID vaccines. So, um, it's not, they, these ones are going to be easy enough to pick up, but they're very rare. Uh, so 
people that have had anaphylaxis to certain other vaccines or components of the vaccine in the past will probably be flagged early. They'll, they'll know they have that allergy and have seen an immunologist. The other ones that are a bit more tricky, uh, and there were a few episodes of immediate severe hypersensitivities in the COVID vaccines, particularly the Pfizer vaccine, are these other um, complement-mediated ones, so the type 2, type 3 reactions. Um, an example of a uh, type 2 reaction would be something like uh, autoimmune hemolysis and things like that, and sometimes they can present uh, quite acutely with hypotension and things like that. So. They're going to be the ones that we, we won't be able to pick up. But um, if you look at the, I'll, I'll go through some, I think I've got a slide on it. Anyway, I'll go through some data on, on how safe the vaccines really are. And then there's these delayed type 4 reactions, which would probably, in terms of vaccine hypersensitivities, would um, fall into the category of things like um, delayed neurological autoimmune conditions, potentially, uh, or granulomatous reactions in the skin. But there, we essentially there's no there's been no adverse events uh, pinned to these vaccines uh, in that category. Next slide, that's right, Tema. Um, so this is just um, a, a quick traffic light system that the CDC put up for the Pfizer vaccine in terms of um, whether or not it's you know safe to go ahead with vaccinating a patient, and it's very very narrow spectrum of patients that fit into the red or yellow category. To be honest. Um, uh, no one's ever had an mRNA vaccine in the past, so you don't have to worry about taking a history of mRNA vaccine allergies, but the other excipients in the Pfizer vaccine um, or the AstraZeneca vaccine uh, is what you'd want to focus on. And the Pfizer vaccine has uh, a, a lipid layer to help it with cell entry when you give the vaccine, uh, which is a, a polyethylene glycol component. Sometimes people will come through with a history of allergy to polyethylene glycol. And it's probably a little bit overstated in the community, people having allergies to these, and they're still extremely rare and the patient will probably know. Uh, there's very few other medications that have polyethylene glycol in it. So anything that's pegylated, so um, these will usually be hematology oncology patients receiving um, depot style medications whilst on the hematology ward and having a reaction to that, but that will be probably quite well documented. Uh, and then the only real uh, oral uh, substances to, to worry about with enough polyethylene glycol to um, be significant and possibly cause an allergy are uh, uh, laxatives and bowel preparation uh, solutions. So if someone's gone in for a colonoscopy in the past and had a severe reaction to the um, bowel prep, um, that might um, cause raised eyebrows and that would be something where you say okay we'll, we'll refer to the um, specialist immunization service at Barwon Health. Uh, in terms of other generic sort of anaphylaxis and severe allergies to you know peanuts or bee stings or anything like that the only recommendations at this stage are to have the, uh, the person wait for 30 minutes rather than 15 minutes after the vaccine to observe for any uh, reaction and if you look at the Pfizer vaccine data I don't think I've got a slide here there were 21 episodes of confirmed uh, immediate hypersensitivity reaction that were consistent with anaphylaxis. Um, and the people, every single person had some form of allergy in their past, but they were all over the place and most of them weren't anaphylaxis. So they were, you know, a, a local reaction to a bee sting or they were um, a, a mild food allergy or something like that. So um, there's no real way of predicting based on other unrelated allergies that they'll have a reaction to the vaccine. But having said that, the 
risk of anaphylaxis in the studies was one in 87,000. So I think we'll be lucky if any of us really do see a true anaphylaxis um, occur with these vaccines. And the data on the AstraZeneca vaccines are even safer, safer to be honest. Um, so uh, this is just what I've been through before. There's, there's polyethylene glycol as the lipid layer um, in the vaccine and the other components are there. They're very common things, salts and sugars and things like that. So people shouldn't really have uh, severe allergies to those, but if they do, please do refer them to our clinic. And I think I've got some information on how that will uh, occur later in the slides. Um, the particular other vaccines to think about if people have had allergies to vaccines in the past, other tetanus, uh, HEPA, uh, HEPI and, and some flu vaccine brands because they have a polysorbate in them, which is related to polyethylene glycol. Um, so that would be one that I would be flagging particularly. And in terms of the types of reactions you'd be worried about previous vaccines, if it was a local, uh, you know, mild erythema at the, at the injection site type reaction, I wouldn't worry about it. But if uh, they had a significant urticarial rash that spread beyond their arm, or they had, you know, obviously wheezing or difficulty breathing or hypotension, um, that wasn't related to a vasovagal event um, and had a, a significant rash, then I would be referring them for pre-vaccination counselling with us. Um, so this, I've just pinched this from our initial discussions with the DHS about how the uh, specialist immunisation clinic will work. So in terms of pre-vaccination counselling, we'll set, be setting up a, a hotline that will be um, we'll have an option to be directed to uh, one of our staff in the clinic uh, once we've got some staff and uh, they will be there to discuss any concerns about, um, you know, complex patients. So, you know, it doesn't have to be allergies. It can be people with um, autoimmune disorders uh, or hereditary bleeding disorders where you're worried about them um, actually um, bleeding or having a hematoma when they have the vaccine. Um, there are some reports of um, ITP being related to the vaccines in um, post-marketing analyses, but at the moment, there's, it's not enough to be above background rates. So um, they've deemed it not related to the vaccines. I think there's been 36 cases in America or something after vaccinating 50 million people. So um, it's, it's extremely rare. Um, the only thing would be if they do have a history of uh, ITP already, <clears throat> which was triggered by a viral illness. It's not a contraindication to getting the vaccine. Um, and, but if you're a bit uncomfortable about uh, administering the vaccine in a patient like that, we're very happy to have a chat or have the patient um, consulted either via telehealth or face-to-face -face in our clinic. Um, the other way that we will get referred patients is via um, SafeVic if they have an adverse reaction to the initial dose. So um, if one of your patients has, does have uh, an allergic reaction or a delayed reaction that you think might be related, uh, or even any significant adverse event that you think might uh, affect their confidence in terms of having their second dose, um, if you report that via the SafeVic website, which is just safevic.org.au, um, and anyone can report, SafeVic will then um, triage all of those separately uh, and centrally, and then refer the ones they think need our clinic review prior to their second dose. Um, and there, there'll be some unpredictable things that you'll, you'll think might be worth talking to us about or, or reporting to SafeVic. Um, and even things like severe needle phobias where they need more than 
you know, just a bit of light sedation like diazepam or something. Um, so here's the reporting process. Um, basically, it's very straightforward. You just go to SafePick, you follow the prompts, you can create a login for your, you can even create a, a login for your practice. So not every individual has to um, have their own login. Um, and then you just follow the prompts and enter the data, basically. And if it's urgent or you're unsure about how to fill in some of the um, paperwork, then you, there's a phone number to call there as well. Um, and you can always call our hotline and be redirected there or, or have a chat with us as well. Um, we're also um, happy, and I don't know if I put this in my slide later on, um, to be, I have, I'll talk about how you can get in contact with us later on. Um, in terms of um, the common um, adverse events following uh, vaccination, so, uh, you know, fever, fatigue, these are all really common. And basically, uh, if you go to the next slide, Gemma, I've just put up a little spiel about this. Um, basically, uh, the health.gov.au have put up some advice about um, any kind of um, common side effect following the vaccine uh, and its overlap with COVID symptoms. And given we're in a very uh, low prevalent situation with COVID, anyone who has you know, fever or fatigue or other systemic symptoms that last less than 48 hours, um, you don't need to test them. Um, I just tell them to remain at home and isolate until their um, symptoms go away. If they're persisting or they develop actual respiratory symptoms, um, or loss of smell, then um, I would be um, testing them and treating them differently. Um, so yeah, just in terms of further advice. Um, so um, GP liaison at Parliament Health uh, um, have been helping us out quite a bit while we get set up um, because we're still sort of working out staff and space and things like that. But essentially our clinic will be up and running on the 22nd of March is the aim. And until then, um, happy to receive any questions or referrals via that email, bigsis at barwinhealth.org.au. Um, and there will be a hotline, which I'm hoping will be um, up and running uh, by Monday, which will have um, prompts to direct you to um, discuss with us. If you need um, urgent advice and you're having trouble getting onto uh, one of my team um, or um, GP liaison can't answer the question, then we have an infectious diseases fellow uh, who has a broad role in the hospital but can potentially answer some of your questions in hours on that number. Uh, and after hours, there'll be an on-call specialist, uh, which will include myself and a few others across the state. We'll, we'll share a roster um, so we can receive urgent calls. But obviously, if there's a, a severe reaction, um, they should be going to the emergency department. Uh, that's it, guys. If there's any questions, let me know. Yeah, great. Thanks. We do have a question in the chat and please do pop any questions that you've got for Callum quickly in the chat. I'll, um, we'll, we'll take a little pause here before we move on to, to start talking about vaccine rollout in primary care. Um, we'll put all those um, contacts. We can maybe throw some of them in the chat for those keen beans who want to pop them in their calendars and diaries now. I'm sorry, diaries now, but um, um, we'll also um, put that all in the post-session email. Oh, great. Thanks, Gemma. All right, we'll put all that, all those details in the post-session email as well and you can share it with colleagues. Um, there was a question from Paul Egan, people on um, oral prednisolone, um, vaccinate them. Can we vaccinate them? Yes, yes. So very safe. Both Neither vaccine is live. Um, the uh, Pfizer vaccine is uh, obviously just the uh, mRNAs of the spike protein and then the um, AstraZeneca vaccine is, uh, it, it's, it's an adenovirus virus vector but it's a chimpanzee adenovirus and it's not the whole genome of the virus so it can't replicate so 
there's no risk like the MMR vaccine in immunocompromised patients. There's obviously questions around how effective it'll be. Um, and because of the exclusion criteria for a lot of the vaccine trials, we, we won't know, but it's definitely not contraindicated. Uh, and because they're such safe vaccines, I'd be vaccinating uh, particularly people on prednisolone and even people that are more immunosuppressed it's safe. It's just a matter of, um, of yeah, how effective it will be. Okay, and, and, and um, other biologicals and immunosuppressing drugs, that applies? Yes, that, that applies to other biologics. So there's, uh, again, so other monoclonal antibodies and things like that, people that have had convalescent plasma and all those sorts of things, uh, we don't know whether that will significantly decrease the efficacy of the vaccine, or I should say effectiveness of the vaccine. Um, and there's no guidance to say we should be doing you know, follow-up serologic testing to make sure they've responded to the vaccine. I think it's all about just getting herd immunity um, at this stage. And, and I would advise them that, you know, they may not be as protected as um, people that aren't on immunosuppression, uh, but, but that, you know, they may develop some immunity from it and it's better than nothing. That's right. So still needing to go with all of those behavioural um, risk reduction strategies. What about people on chemo? People on chemo, so... That would be something I would probably um, consider discussing with the haematologist or referring to us. Uh, it would be completely safe, but it really depends on what stage they're at with their chemotherapy. So if they, you know, if they are going to uh, have immune reconstitution, for example, in the near future, you could always delay the vaccine and wait until they achieve that because otherwise you might be giving them uh, an ineffective vaccine. And then we don't know what to do if they've had a dose of the vaccine and then they reconstitute their immune system and they're due for their booster, they might have, um, you know, less immunity. And there is a phenomenon that's, um, I don't think will happen with these vaccines, but um, with certain uh, immunity, there is a phenomenon known as sort of low avidity immunity, which can cause more severe disease in other illnesses. The classic example is, is dengue fever, where you, you get dengue, and then you get some strong immunity for a few months and then it wanes and then you are at risk of worse infection. I'm not saying that that will happen in, in this situation, but that's why it's worth discussing those patients with us or, or the haematologists uh, or oncologists, because um, if we can defer their vaccine until they have a stronger immune system, we're, we're better off so that we can give them more immunity. If they're on chronic low dose immunosuppression or oral chemotherapy, I think we just go ahead and vaccinate them. But um, you can always uh, discuss that with us or the haematologist or oncologist first. Okay, so just to be clear, um, that phenomenon that you're describing is is specifically in patients who've uh, undergone chemo, not in not something that's been observed more broadly. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and we're in a unique situation here globally that we, uh, you know, there is, there is advice on this on, on health, uh, on the HealthGov website, and I don't want to contradict it, but um, we're in a unique situation where we have no cases around. So it's going to be a case-by-case -case discussion about um, exactly that person's risk in terms of how often they're visiting the hospital, what, who, who they live with, uh, you know, what, what their risk of exposure is, um, as well as, you know, how, how quickly they're going to be off chemotherapy. But if they're, if they're proceeding down a long course of chemotherapy, then it might be worth having the discussion with us or the, or the haematologist about vaccinating. 
Yeah, great. That's fantastic to have your service and to have that um, back up and support. And so no doubt everyone's um, squirreling away those numbers and referral pathways. And um, Kate Graham, um, uh, I guess, um, also will be um, charged with updating our, our pathways to incorporate that um, information. So Kate, any word on how far away until we have that all in health pathways? Or oh, you can tell us in the next coming weeks. Also, Kate's uh, so some, just yeah. in terms of when things are in health pathways. So it'll be just as we get the information from each of the clinics. So the SafeVic um, reporting information is already on there and the SafeVic clinic referral um, number for people currently is um, also up there or their fax number to make those referrals to clinics in the interim. Um, and if you call that number rather um, sort of than Barwon, they will actually um, triage and direct you to places when they're open as well. So... Thank um, you. If you're in a different region. Yeah, great. Cheers. Callum, I'm going to throw one to you. And I know it might not be um, something that you're ready to answer today or you might want to come back to us, but Penny Scott asks about vaccination for kids. So I understand that Pfizer, not under 16, AstraZeneca, not under 18, and trials are underway. But have you got any further advice you'd like to? No, at this stage, holding pattern, uh, we know that uh, kids are going to be very low down the list anyway. Uh, in terms of their risk of severe disease. Um, but the head of the uh, VIXIS program at the DHS, Nigel Crawford, um, also heads up the Specialist Immunisation Service, which is what we're basing our model off at the Children's, which has been longstanding. So um, I'm sure he's keeping abreast of um, all the, the data on that. But I think that, yeah, it's sort of been pushed to the side at this stage um, because of their low transmission rates and um, and low risk of severe disease. Great. Thank you very much. And Kate Graham reminds us of the principle of cocooning as well, so vaccinating families to protect the vulnerable children. Um, and Nigel Crawford's contributing to our health pathway. So that's fantastic. Great. It's all coming together. Um, thanks, Callum. Um, if you're happy to stick around and just how um, there might still be some things coming through in the chat that are vaccine-related, um, good to know your, your service is um, getting up off the ground and is going to be there as we start to roll out our community vaccines and no doubt have many of these patients coming in asking questions. Thank you. No problem. Cheers. All right. So Danny um, Tresize, many of you will have heard a voice but not seen her in the in person. So we're really pleased that she's joining us this morning. Um, really, uh, what the ask for this morning really was we wanted to think about how um, thinking's progressing around the EOIs. We realised that everyone's um, only been given the letter last week and starting to kind of try to get themselves into gear. So um, I, we thought it was a great opportunity to invite Danny, who's uh, really had that experience of putting together a GP respiratory clinic and now having to kind of think about the same ops and logistics when it comes to the vaccine. So um, Jenny's going to share with us um, where she's up to with that. Thanks Bianca. Good morning everybody. Um, hopefully this morning I can share some information with you about lessons that we learned setting up the um, vaccination, uh, sorry the COVID testing clinic um, because a lot of um, similar principles and, and thinking might apply um, when you're considering setting up vaccination clinics in your general practices for COVID. Um, it is very complex for everyone, given that, you know, we had a week to sort of put in our expression of interest and then we still don't have clear timelines around when we might have access to vaccines and, and those sort of things. So um, there's probably a lot of you in the frantic planning stage like we are to try and figure out how we can manage to do that. Um, do you want to pop the slides up? Um, beautiful. There we are. There's our... Um, Three practices, Bridge Mall, Dufton Street and Sturt Street, and a, um, a sign from outside our 
COVID testing clinic. Hopefully too many of you haven't had to visit us there, but um, it's still running uh, very busy. So when we put in our additional expression of interest, um, we put in one for the uh, COVID testing clinic. The Commonwealth indicated they wanted the GPRCs to be able to deliver vaccines, but we also still have to commit to being able to support the people in the community that do uh, need symptomatic testing. So um, we put in an expression of interest from there and we also put in an expression of interest um, from our three general practice sites. Um, like the rest of you, we had to pull it together very quickly. Um, and then when we got the letter, we had to actually really start thinking about how we would be able to translate that into the practicality of actually being able to do it. And it's, it's a bit tricky. Um, so we initially had thought we would be able to run the COVID um, GPRC vaccination clinic from the same site as our testing clinic. Obviously we have to separate those patients coming for symptomatic testing from those coming from vaccinations. So we were going to reduce the testing clinic, you know, hours and clean the clinic and then open, you know, after lunch, for example, um, as a vaccination clinic. But the numbers of people requiring testing has remained so high that, that that's not going to be um, a possible option. So we're now looking at setting up a separate, uh, completely separate site, completely staffed separately. Um, so we'll have one site where we're doing testing and a separate site where we'll be doing vaccination. Um, and it's really difficult because we need to actually look at how we're going to support the community because the aim is to get, you know, as many of those people who want to be vaccinated, vaccinated as quickly as possible. And it's going to be a um, all-in effort because we can't, you know, do it by ourselves. I'm aware that some uh, GP practices didn't put in expressions of interest um, and some are also starting to think, can we actually do it? Even though they've been deemed um, eligible, they may not actually take up doing it. So we all need to be working collaboratively and working together to get this to happen. So that concludes the panel presentation for this session. We'll bring you any other snippets that we can, but come along and join the discussion next week. Um, Linda, I'll throw over to you. Thanks, Bianca, and morning, everybody. Uh, just quickly, so we know that in our region, 129 general practices are eligible. Uh, further information is imminent that will provide some onboarding information, doses of, um, doses of vaccine that will be available. So I think, yeah, having this conversation again next week will be really helpful. Um, in regards to the private RACS, Aspen are starting to roll out their processes more methodically and by the end of this week they will have visited 14 RACFs, private ones in our region, so that's good. And just in regards to the COVID-19 training, I just wanted to reiterate what Kate said earlier, that it's really important for, for all staff to do it and um, having done the modules the other evening, um, it's definitely worth your time. It gives you a lot of background information and would answer some of the questions that have come up today as well. So I think keep an eye on your emails, everybody. And I think, yeah, this time next week will be a better place to, to know where we're heading as well. I think that's it. Thanks, Bianca. Oh, what a start. All right. Thanks, everyone. Sorry to kind of bring this to a close quickly, but we'll continue the conversation. Have a good week and we'll see you next week. This series was brought to you by the West Vic PHN. I'm Bianca Forrester and I'm the GP facilitator for this series. I'd like to acknowledge the work of Gemma Misbach, Natalie Love, Fiona Quigley, Matt Dixon and Kate Graham for their work in coordination, support and contribution to this series. These audio catch-ups are produced by Gemma Misbach, myself and Jade Buller. Come along and join the discussions on Thursday mornings at 7.30am via Zoom. You can register on the West Vic PHN website by looking up Project Echo COVID-19.
All sessions are RACGP and ACRAM accredited as a time-based activity and CPD certificates are available for non-GP participants. Thanks for listening and join us again next time.